In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Dr. Amber Banks is our guest this week on Money Tales. When she was in second grade, Amber switched from a private elementary school to a public one. The private school was predominantly white and the public school was predominantly black. For Amber, who self-identifies as a black biracial woman, this was a pivotal moment requiring her to navigate two different environments and become a bridge builder between the two. As Amber tells us, it was hard at times to feel she was enough in either environment. Amber is the founder and CEO of an organization called the Center for Trust and Transformation, which focuses on all of the ways in which trust is cultural and contextual. After receiving her PhD focused in education policy, organizations, and leadership, she worked as a senior program officer at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Amber is dedicated to advancing trust as a foundational building block for social and racial justice. Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics Amber hits on in this conversation. First, she shares how the injustice of certain people, mostly white affluent people having access to more resources, stirred the rubble in her, causing Amber to try and be in spaces that she wasn't necessarily destined for. Channeling her I'll show you attitude, Amber decided to go to a very expensive school for college and ended up in a lot of debt. Second, how relationships and trust will help close the racial wealth gap. And third, how she's instilling in her children that community is a collective and there's a duty, not just a spirit of generosity, to contribute to the collective's wholeness. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, on to our conversation with Amber Banks. Hello, Money Tales listeners. This is Cami, and I'm here with my co-host, Sandy. Hey, Cami. I am so excited to have another Money Tales episode today. As I was getting ready for our conversation with our guest, I was thinking through a recent money conversation I had with a family that I work with here at Asperian. We had the opportunity to get together with multiple generations of the family because the wealth creators were wanting to have a conversation with the entire family about what they had planned for not only themselves, but for the rising generations. So their estate planning? Starting with their wealth planning and what they're hoping to accomplish during their lifetimes for themselves and their family, and also moving on to their estate plan. So what would happen if both of these people died? It was really fun to get these different generations of the family together 
And as Money Tales listeners know, one of the greatest ways to have conversations about money is to be very clear on what your values are. We started off the conversation with this family using a technique we use with many other families, which is getting them to tell stories about the family. So we asked each family member to go around and tell us a story that best captures for them the essence of their family. And it was such a warm and wonderful way to hear this family of many adults from different generations share how connected they are through joint values. That was one of the biggest things that came out of these stories of the different values. And there was so much overlap. I wanted to share that with you and with our listeners, because I think it's a great technique for easing into these money conversations, which are so important. Sandy, what an important question for all of us to think about and share around our tables. Thanks for that story. And now I get to welcome our guest, Amber Banks. It's wonderful to have you on our Money Tales podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Please introduce yourself and share with us two to three pivotal moments that really influenced you, making you the person you are today? First of all, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks again for having me. My name is Dr. Amber Banks. I'm the founder and CEO of an organization called the Center for Trust and Transformation, which focuses on all the ways in which trust is cultural and contextual. I was born and raised in Los Angeles to a Black father and a white mother, identify as Black biracial. A couple of turning points in my life. One was when I was in second grade. I lived primarily with my mom in a predominantly white neighborhood. As a single mother, she worked a lot. Money for us was often quite tight, but education was really important to her. She, to the best of her abilities, prioritized sending me to private schools. When I was in second grade, that was not feasible. So I went to my local elementary school in Los Angeles, which bordered a neighborhood that was predominantly Black. My local neighborhood school was a predominantly Black school. So in second grade, I switched from a school that was predominantly white to predominantly Black. I had a lot of friends in both schools. I was a pretty outgoing kid and really enjoyed school. I made a lot of friends pretty quickly in my neighborhood school. A couple of girls in my grade in particular, we really got along and had play dates and whatnot. Pretty soon after I was part of this school, I noticed a lot of differences between the two schools. I noticed the difference in resources. I noticed the difference in how students were treated, how parents were engaged. I noticed a difference in the expectations that the teachers had of us in terms of our academic achievement and our behavior. The public school was a lot stricter. We did a lot of worksheets. This wasn't as engaging, in my opinion. Soon after I entered the school, for a variety of reasons, I went back to my old school. It had a profound effect on me. The eight-year-old little girl in me could not understand how where someone was born and how someone looked could so profoundly impact the opportunities that we had to learn. And it stuck with me for my entire life and continues to for this day. I became a teacher as a result of this and worked in education for about a decade as a teacher and another decade in a variety of other advocacy and research roles. But it really stuck with me that race and socioeconomic status were true predictors of outcomes. And I couldn't understand why I, as a young Black girl in Los Angeles, had been chosen 
in our society to have access to different resources, primarily because of the status of my mother. That was one pivotal moment that really shaped who I am and what I do. The second was becoming a mother. I have two kids who are five and eight. Similarly, it just shifted my worldview. It made it so that things that were important before I became a parent suddenly fell away. And the most important thing was figuring out how to set my kids up for success. And then the final moment, I would say, was when I graduated from my PhD program. I graduated from the University of Washington. I have a PhD in education leadership and policy as a result of this lifelong journey around education justice and social justice generally. And it was in my PhD program that I developed this fascination around trust, which has truly been a form of medicine for me and a curiosity that has really driven a lot of my work in my life. My work around trust during my PhD program really focused on cross-cultural trust building, which again goes back to my background and navigating these two different environments and being a bridge builder in my own right from a very young age. All three are really amazing, interesting, pivotal moments. The first one, I think we'll spend some more time on. Obviously, it's frustrating and many more emotions come to mind. Would you go back to when you were growing up and share with us a little bit more about your upbringing and importantly, how was money talked about in your home with your mom? How did you start to experience it and become aware of money? Both my parents were raised on farms, rural Kentucky for my dad and rural Nebraska for my mom. They both grew up relatively poor. They both were very ambitious. So they ended up moving to Los Angeles together in the late 70s and both had a vision for their lives that was different than where they had come from. What drew them to LA? Good question. They both have different stories, but sunshine, excitement, newness. LA in the late 70s is a pretty fun place when you're coming from the Midwest. I think at the same time, though, my mom sold fabric to hotels and was in a male-dominated industry at a time when women were not necessarily in leadership roles. And she worked in sales. And so she traveled all the time, all over the Western United States. We were comfortable, but there was not a lot of extra money lying around. The margins were pretty thin. And a lot of what I experienced around money had to do with what type of sales year my mom had. Some years were better than others. And because she worked in the hospitality industry, recessions hit us hard. I felt that impact. And especially as a single mom, there was not a lot of buffer between <laughs> what she was experiencing and what I was experiencing. A lot of times we lived with roommates, family, friends, because my mom traveled so much. She needed someone to take care of me while she was gone during the week. And I spent weekends with my dad. But generally speaking, we had our ups and downs, but we were comfortable. We always had a garden. We always grew our own food. We ate a lot of meatloaf. Our vacations were road trips. I was loved and we lived in a nice, comfortable situation, but it always felt like walking a tightrope. Was your mom talking to you about money? She was telling me how hard it was. I remember a lot of stress around money. Did you feel that stress yourself? Oh, yeah. How expensive school was, how expensive the cost of living was ways that we could offset costs. It was definitely tense most of the time. How did that impact you as a young person? 
I think I tried to help as much as I could. I wanted to help out around the house. I tried to not ask for too many things. I was a big reader, so I'd get books mostly. We weren't living, well, sometimes I think we were living from paycheck to paycheck. But I think she tried to shield me from it as much as possible. I could just see that she was very stressed out. And I wanted to help her out as much as possible. I think it was hard too, because she was self-employed as a salesperson. And so she had a lot of overhead costs for travel and running her office and her business and all of that. And so it was hard because she, on paper, made a decent amount of money, but a lot of that went out. I didn't qualify for a lot of scholarships and things like that because of the way her gross income looked decent. But once you took out taxes and health and travel and all of that, there wasn't much left at the end of the day. My dad worked for the post office. He didn't make a lot of money either, but enough to be comfortable. And the funny thing about both of them that is really interesting and has stuck with me, they both appreciated the finer things in life. So they were both impeccable dressers. They are still impeccable dressers, both of them. They cared a lot about their car being clean and everything being nice. From outside appearances, you'd never know how much money they made. I wanted to ask about your two schools. You were young, but I'd love to get a sense of how did money feel at those times? And maybe it's more reflecting back about those two differences and what money meant in those two different environments. In private schools, particularly as I got into middle school and high school, I was going to school with mostly white, mostly wealthy students. I was not either of those things. Feeling a sense of belonging was hard. I noticed the difference and I tried to keep up the best that I could by putting on appearances or trying to fit in as much as possible. In the public school, it felt more comfortable for me. I felt like there were kids who had more shared experiences than I did, who came from similar backgrounds. It just felt a little different. Some of my friends that I'd visit from private schools lived in big houses further away. And a lot of the kids that I'd visit from the public school lived in apartments close by. And those are generalities, but it just felt like there was more common ground. But I spent more time in private schools in those environments, so I adapted. Were you pleased at the time to have had those experiences or was part of you wanting to be back in public school longer because of the shared experiences and the sense of belonging that you felt there? As a result of going back and forth between lots of different environments, I've always been very adaptable and I've always found my people wherever I am. I did like public school and I did want to make it work. I tried again in high school. That didn't work for a variety of reasons. I did feel more of a connection with students there, but I have lifelong friends from middle school and high school, so it didn't take away from it. I played basketball and being a biracial Black girl in those cases, it's hard sometimes to feel as though I was enough in either environment. How did that translate into becoming a woman and setting off on your own financially independent pursuit? I probably harbored some anger about money, both the lack of it and feeling the not enoughness, but also in the arbitrary nature of who got money and who had access to those resources. 
that anger and frustration translated into some pretty irresponsible decisions around money. Nothing major, but I decided to go to a very expensive college when I could have gone to a public school. To me, the injustice of certain people, mostly white affluent people having access to more resources was an affront in so many ways. And my rebelliousness was to try and be in spaces that I wasn't necessarily destined for. I'll show you kind of attitude. like, Yeah, but then what happened is a lot of debt. Tell us about pursuing your career in teaching. What were your desires given this background and this frustration? I was a special education teacher. I fell into it. I'd actually studied journalism in college and didn't go into that. In part, 9-11 happened while I was in college and I was living in Boston and I had a lot of friends who were impacted by it. And I realized that my temperament is such that it's very difficult for me to remain objective in the face of trauma. I have a lot of empathy and I'm more of the compassionate sidekick. The only other thing I had done is work with kids. I was a tutor and a babysitter and I had done a lot of working with children. And so I became a teacher and in many ways, it makes so much sense because that work was part of the healing that I needed to do because of my own experience. Working with kids who are differently abled in a variety of capacities and supporting students from a multitude of backgrounds, it helped me feel in my own little way like I was righting a wrong. Tell us about the debt part because teacher salaries are typically limited. How are you reconciling your personal financial situation with your career ambition at that time? I worked all the time. I worked in the summer. I worked after school as a tutor. I worked 60, 70 hours a week for nine years. And living in Los Angeles, the cost of living is really high. I would go to school at 7 a.m. and I'd get home after tutoring at 7 p.m. most days. I never took a summer off, not one. I did what I had to do to meet the financial responsibilities that I had. Definitely a cold splash water in the face, that's for sure. What were you telling yourself at the time? That's intense to work that hard for that long with no break. One of the things that I did learn along the way from my parents and others is that there can be joy in work. If you find the thing that's right for you, work arduous and tedious and exhausting and all of those things, but it can also be energizing and exciting and joyful. It was really hard work, but I love working with kids. I really love being a teacher. I love the challenge of it. Kids are like little puzzle pieces that we get the privilege to witness as they put themselves together and unfold. And I loved working with families, so I got a lot of energy from it too. After almost a decade, I was pretty exhausted, but I have a lot of fond memories of walking into the classroom, first days of school, having those breakthroughs with kids and families. So it really did give me a lot of energy back too. And that's when you went back to school to get your PhD 10 years later? Yeah, I had reached a point of exhaustion working at that level for that long will take it out of you. I, again, was very frustrated with the injustices that I had seen in the education system continued. And I saw them from different angles this time. I saw them from inside the system. As a student, I was inside the system, but I was in many ways a recipient of what the system was offering or not offering. In this case, I was a cog in the machine. It was enormously frustrating. I had this narrative in my head that 
the people who were developing the policies that I was responsible for implementing in my classroom had little experience in classrooms. I went on this crusade of, I'm going to be a teacher who gets to the decision-making table, wherever that is. In order to do that, especially as a Black woman, I need credibility. Credibility translated to PhD in my head. I made yet another expensive decision. (laughs) Investment, investment. (laughs) Another investment, that's right, to get a PhD. And it really was about having more people who look like me at those tables who bring experience from and relationships with more on the ground frontline work. You said it was in graduate school that you became interested in trust, in trust from a cross-cultural perspective. How does that translate into money? Because so much of our money lives and what we share about them and the decisions we make and who we're making them with is all based on trust. So glad you asked. This is the direction that I'm headed in, which I'm really excited about. I have an instinct that the racial wealth gap which is widening in many ways right now, one of the toolkits that we can apply to closing the racial wealth gap is relationships and trust. There certainly are intergenerational aspects to wealth building. The story you mentioned earlier, right? Money is handed down. And in that same way, this lack of access to wealth is passed down. And it's, in my opinion, not accidental. It's systemic as a result of a lot of oppression and harm that's happened in this country. Those reconnections around money are rooted in trust. I have a hypothesis that if we can start to build more cross-cultural relationships, build more relationships with people who have wealth, with those who don't, who are doing really impactful work, or I talk sometimes about reparations as a form of healing, Edgar Villanueva talks about money as medicine. He says money is a tool to reflect the obligations people develop towards each other as they interact. I think of that as guidance for how we can use trust to unravel these closed networks of wealth. I love this idea of bringing more people together to have conversation. So much trust does get developed, which is why Cami and I and our colleagues at Asperian are so focused on having money conversations and encouraging more people to have them because it does open up so much connection. Now that you're a mom of two relatively young kids, how do you talk to them about money and or demonstrate your values around money? We've just entered the phase of chores and allowance. Me too, Amber. Excellent. Well, I welcome any tips you have. That's our initial setting the foundation of we work and earn, or in less capitalistic terms, that there are multiple incentives for contributing. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I've been on a learning journey around and continue to unpack is deepening my understanding around privilege and the privileges that I have, the privileges that are operating around us, and the relationship between privilege and power and how privilege can come in many forms. And one of the things that throughout the course of my life was also instilled by my parents is this notion of giving back, that regardless of how much or how little you have, that we really are a collective. It is not just out of a spirit of generosity, but actually a duty to contribute to our collective wholeness. That's something that's been a thread throughout that we continue to instill in our children. It's about managing money and saving money and understanding goals and all of that. But 
really trying to help them understand that it's not ours, really. It does belong to all of us. And we have a responsibility and we have a choice to what we want to support. So our daughter, for example, she's really into horses. So she donated some of her allowance to a horse rescue and rehabilitation center. And we try and model that service can come in the form of time or money, but that there really is a collective aspect to it and understanding that they bring a lot of privilege in their current financial status, that it's our responsibility to open up those pathways for others. I really appreciate you highlighting privilege. It's such an important message to share with our kids. And I'm curious, any conversations you're having around taxes? We haven't delved into taxes other than they know that they exist. And they've asked a lot of questions about what taxes go to. Why do we pay them? And what are we buying, essentially? Or what are we getting? So we haven't talked about taxes, but I would say it's more around... A good example would be our daughter got money for her birthday from her grandparents. Our son didn't have as much money, and she suddenly had more money than she'd ever had in her life, under $100, but still a lot for a kid. He really wanted something, and she bought it for him. She used her money. So I think it really is trying to deconstruct this notion of individualism inside of money. I was very proud of her. But that's just something that through all of the lessons that I've learned because of the way wealth moves in this country, the more we can transfer wealth and power to Black and brown people in this country, the better off we'll all be. I love the lessons that you're teaching your children about that. As you're talking, I was just thinking about the word privilege. It's a very common word that we use today. Do you have a definition that you use to define what privilege is? There are a lot of people who can feel guilty about having privilege, or they can feel like they're different because they have privilege or they don't have privilege. But I don't know that everyone would agree upon what exactly privilege means. I'm sure there are better definitions than what comes off the top of my head. But the first thing that comes to mind is accumulated power. And power comes in many forms. It can be access, wealth. It's the ways in which society has rewarded an individual or a group of people based on status symbols like race and wealth, geography, immigration status. They have those privilege wheels I've seen folks use where if you are a white cisgendered man who comes from a wealthy background and graduated from a four-year college and so on and so forth, it accumulates. I love what you're doing to encourage more people to spread the wealth around. There's plenty in this world for all of us. You're onto something with being much more intentional in trying to move that money around and give everybody a fair share chance at it because we all deserve it. I agree. I study networks as well. I've studied trust networks before. And there's this interesting phenomenon that I'm trying to name. I don't have a good name for it yet. Right now, I call it the transitive property of trust. But there's this concept around the strength of weak ties in networks. A guy named Granovetter came up with it. It basically says that we get the majority of the things we need from not the people who are closest to us, but a couple degrees away. I think trust in terms of 
closing the racial wealth gap is a critical tool for this because the more we extend the trust that we have, we spend our trust, if you will, the more we're going to open up our networks to other people that have access to that. So for example, Cicely recommended me for this podcast and likely because you know and have some element of trust in Sicily, you said, okay, sure. And so I got access versus if I just cold called and said, hey, I'm a random person. There's some real power in our relationships. And in fact, I would love to explore one day. Wealth is wealth and it's important to name, but the value of our relationships in gaining access to things like wealth and other resources, they're catalytic. I like your description, the transitive property of trust. Will you tell us what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? We'll be with my partner tomorrow morning. We have our weekly money meeting every week for years. Sometimes in busy times it falls off, but we have a money meeting where we align on our finances, our goals, anything else that is coming up around money. It's been a really critical space for my partner and I to align around what our priorities are and how we use our resources. Is there an agenda that you stick to? We have a running agenda. It usually centers around looking at our spending and better understanding where our money is going, looking at our priorities and seeing if our spending is aligned to our priorities. And then a miscellaneous bucket of things that revolve. We just went through a big move. And so a lot of our miscellaneous categories were around the move. But there's also the boring administrative stuff, like did you call the cable company? (laughs) But if we don't do these meetings, we don't do it. We don't have the conversation at all. Or we have the conversation in passing and we both forget. That's fantastic. Amber, thank you for sharing that and all your background, your story, opening our minds and eyes to so many things. And thank you for joining us on Money Tales. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.